we're announcing the expansion of vaccine availability in the state of Florida. Long lines, new strains, more federal help on the way. COVID catastrophe drives the bills and the budget. Get back! Get back! So do protests and policing. Hear what they're debating in Tallahassee. Black businesses matter. Black education matters. A new day, a new drive to even the playing field. The yeas are 57. The nays are 43. Impeachment, the view from one of South Florida's most notable attorneys. It's all live, all this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glennon Milberg, a lot to cover today. We begin with changes underway to the laws we live by in this time of COVID. Florida lawmakers are preparing bills ahead of the annual session that begins in just about two weeks. Their focus, mitigating effects of the pandemic on Florida residents and businesses, also passing some tough conservative laws, including one that would restrict demonstrations. There is just no end to the mischief that lawmakers can do once they're up in Tallahassee. Occasionally, they also pass laws that help Floridians live better lives. Let's talk all about that. Live with us today, State Rep Daniel Perez, Republican from Northwest Miami-Dade, in line to become House Speaker in 2024. And State Senator Gary Farmer, Democrat from Eastern Broward County and the State Senate Minority Leader. Good morning, everybody. Hey, gentlemen, good morning. Glad you were with us. Appreciate it. Good morning to you both. Yeah, yeah. Rep Representative Perez, let me begin with the uh, bill that we mentioned, House Bill, House bill 1. It is called the Combating Public Disorder Law. Uh, it is strongly supported by you, by Governor DeSantis. Uh, as we all know, the First Amendment to the Constitution guarantees the right of the people to peaceably assemble and petition the government for a redress of grievances this bill would put some strict limits on that ability to demonstrate. Michael, I think that uh, that's a good bill to start off with. I, I can tell we're, we're shooting for the stars out of the gate with this conversation. But look, I, I respectfully am going to disagree with you. And, and I thought the description um, of the bill, uh, as far as it potentially limiting freedom of speech or, uh, or demonstrations, is, is inaccurate. I would tell you that the purpose of this bill and what this bill will do, if it were to pass in this same posture, um, is those uh, those that incite uh, violence through their protests um, will be held accountable um, in different variety of ways, in a variety of ways, as opposed to today where, I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, at some of these riots, uh, those that are being dealt with, these, those that are being protested peacefully yeah, are... Rep Representative Pierce, I'm sorry, let me jump in here and simply say, yes, other parts of the country after the murder of George Floyd had some violent protests, aside from a smattering of violence in Miami and Fort Lauderdale, the, the demonstrations in Florida by Black Lives Matter and others were really fairly peaceful. Uh, so why, why is this draconian law needed? I'm, I'm, I'm sure there were many peaceful protests. I saw many of them myself. 
But let's also not forget there was violence. I mean, if Michael, if you didn't see any violence, and, I, and I'm sure I can send you some clips. I mean, in Bayside, they were smashing windows. They On I-95, they were standing in the middle of the highway. I mean, one thing is, is peacefully protesting, which I saw in the city of Coral Gables by all races, by all backgrounds, the way it should be, discussing all issues. And another thing is smashing a brick through the window of a store, a small business that probably can't recuperate, especially in times like COVID. That's what we're trying to stop. Freedom of speech is, is was one of the foundation principles of this country. We're not taking that away. If you're peacefully protesting, you're going to be perfectly fine. This bill will not affect you. If you want to create violence, then yes, this bill will affect you. To your point, uh, Daniel Perez, the, the bill, HB1, it's actually called Combating Public Disorder. Um, Gary Farmer, bringing you into the conversation. Uh, crimes committed like that, there are laws already on the books to address violence and assault and looting. Um, what do you think of this bill? How, how would this change things? Uh, thank you and good morning, Michael and, and Glenna and, uh, and, and to my good friend, uh, Danny Perez, and I say that sincerely. Sometimes we, we say good friend and it may not be so sincere. Uh, uh, Danny is a, is, a, is a good person, good moderate Republican, but uh, I do disagree with uh, his assessment on this bill. In fact, this bill is, is a solution in search of a problem. Uh, as you alluded to, Glenna, we have numerous laws already on the books. Uh, assault, battery, trespass, harassment. Uh, even unlawful assembly uh, laws. We also have laws that prohibit insurrection or sedition. Uh, and I believe our president violated those laws, and I've called on the attorney general uh, to open an investigation of him. But this bill uh, uh, goes way too far and would have a potentially devastating, uh, chilling effect on our right to not only free speech, to, but to peaceably assemble. Uh, our founding fathers specifically put in the Constitution the right to peaceable assembly. But why, uh, let me just uh, stop you a second. Why, why would it stop peaceful assembly? Explain Well, that. first of all, it, it takes away uh, your right to, uh, it makes it unlawful uh, to stand or assemble in a public street, regardless of whether you have a permit or not. Um, and our Florida Supreme Court has already held long ago in a case called Spears v. State that the mere existence of statutes purporting to criminalize protected expression do in fact operate as a deterrent to the exercise of the rights to free expression. So again, Glenn, we already have these criminal statutes that would uh, allow for prosecution of anybody who commits violence. I'll also point out that ACLU and others have done studies that show that uh, by almost a two to one margin, uh, 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 liberal progressive groups are more likely to be prosecuted or to have violence committed against them during an assembly than, than, than white supremacist or other conservative groups. Uh, uh, and this bill would only enhance that ability. The bill, in fact, restricts the ability of mayors or, or city or county commissions uh, uh, from uh, telling police to stand down or don't use rubber bullets or things of that nature. It would make those local leaders liable uh, should anything occur. So, so this bill goes way, way too far. We have existing laws on the books that protect our society when there is violence. And most of the violence is being incited by the conservative movement, the Proud Boys. In Tallahassee, we had a peaceful Black Lives March uh, back in May, I believe it was. And, uh, and, and a gentleman from Georgia in a red pickup truck charged his truck through the crowd. The police, rather than going to quickly arrest him, uh, uh, put up a wall around to protect him. Uh, so we've already seen a disparate effect by uh, our laws against yeah. the right to peaceably we, assemble. Yeah, uh, Senator, and this, we, this we understand there's been 
bad behavior on the left side of the spectrum on the right side. Let's move on to yet another controversial bill and Representative Perez don't mean to sort of put you on the defensive, but let me ask you about the bill that would essentially grant legal immunity to nursing homes, ALF's long-term care facilities from lawsuits alleging negligence connected to the COVID pandemic. I mean, why should these nursing homes get a pass if they have in fact been negligent in the care of one of their patients? Yeah, Michael, and it's okay putting me in the defensive. I fully expected that, but that's why I'm here because I enjoy it. I do need to I do need to rebut something that Senator Farmer said. And yes, we are good friends, but I do need to put some facts out there. There is no personal liability for any elected official on a municipal level if they were not or were to give a permit that didn't have law enforcement uh, presence uh, because of the permit process. That that is, that is a fallacy. Um, the truth is, it it the liability goes to the municipality as a whole. It goes to the commission as a whole. No elected official is going to be personally liable. And going back to the peaceful protest in public places without permitting, if they have the permits, then and they're peacefully protesting, this bill doesn't apply to them because we, we all of a sudden went to the rhetoric of the white supremacy and Black Lives Matter and the the red pickup truck in Georgia. The talking points that the media just loves to chomp at the bits at. Let's talk about facts for a second, and then I'm going to move on to answer your question real quick, Michael. I'm sorry I had to do this, but if you're peacefully protesting and you have the permit to peacefully protest in that area, this bill won't apply to you. Life will move on, uh, and, right, I'll move well, on the, and I'll move on to the since, next answer as well. Yeah, <laughs> Representative Perez, since we are back on the combating, you know, anti-mob bill, as it is generally known, uh, let me ask you, there is a provision in this bill that says that anybody who got caught up in a demonstration on a roadway, as people in fact did on I-95 and 395 last May in downtown Miami, that if they felt threatened, they could drive through the crowd, maybe hurt or even kill somebody, and they could not be prosecuted for a crime. Is that justified? It's not about driving through a crowd if you feel threatened. First of all, no one should be on 985. Let's start with that. Really, the conversation should end there because you shouldn't be walking down 995. The same way you shouldn't be jaywalking on Bird Road and 87th Avenue. And in today's, in today's laws, if I'm driving the way I'm supposed to on the right of way on traffic and someone were to jump in front of my car on Bird Road, yeah, I, I would be immune from, from criminal charges while I was driving my car properly. The same would apply to a person that's driving down I-95 and a protester, Republican, Democrat, Independent, I don't care what they are, jumps on the middle of road of I-95 and gets hit. Of course, the driver that was doing their job and driving the way they should through the right way of traffic shouldn't be shouldn't be liable. I mean, that's just common sense. We don't even. That's not that's not that's I, not even a discussion point. I, Michael, I I couldn't disagree more. You don't have the right to run somebody over because you're being inconvenienced. Uh, this bill doesn't just apply to I-95. It applies to any roadway. And again, it takes away your ability to do those types of assemblies or marches with or without a permit. We have laws right now where we get permits. I saw these peaceable, peaceful marches in Tallahassee, down Monroe Street, main thoroughfare of the city. People are peacefully brought. See, the point of peaceful assembly and protest is to draw attention to an issue that is being yeah. ignored. Well, that's an age-old so when you have a permit to do that, in America. you should be allowed. We, um, we have to take a quick break. I'm, I'm listening to this and listening to you, and I'm thinking we're going to do a whole program on just this one bill mm -hmm. because there is a lot to talk about. We promised our viewers kind of a preview of more, so we're going to get into some of the other bills on tap when we cut right back. Stay with us.
We are back with Representative Daniel Perez from Miami-Dade, State Senator Gary Farmer from Broward, talking about, no time to talk about all the bills on tap, but um, we were talking about one of the governor's priority bills in the last segment. Uh, Daniel Perez, the Republicans uh, in the House have sort of a business focus this session. And I know we, we started to talk a little bit about the uh, bills to protect businesses, government entities from uh, nursing homes, from liability where it comes to COVID-related issues. Uh, and there are a number of bills that are specifically in place to sort of protect people and business from the damages of COVID. I know that's one of your priorities. Um, talk a little bit, if you would, how difficult those things are going to be in debate. Yeah, Glenn, I, I'm gonna be honest. I think the most important bill that we're gonna see uh, this upcoming session is gonna be the COVID liability bill on the business side, which in, in the House is HB7. And then separate from that, we have a healthcare liability one when it comes to COVID uh, as, as a different bill. I'll talk about the business one real quick, just to get it out there. Um, the way it works today is if you were to want to uh, file a lawsuit against a business, um, you would have to prove that they were grossly negligent by a standard of clear and convincing. That would be the burden of proof that they didn't abide by the CDC guidelines or the Department of Health guidelines and someone contracted COVID because of their gross negligence. Assuming that the plaintiff were to be able to um, accomplish all of those prongs, uh, then the business would be liable um, under this bill. Yeah. Uh Gary Farmer, you are a trial lawyer. You are in court um, putting on your trial lawyer hat, looking at a bill that would limit the ability of a, a son, a daughter, uh, to sue a ALF uh, where they believe there had been gross or even just some kind of negligence. Uh, what's your opinion of it? It's horrific. It, it, it's, it's abhorrent. It's, it, listen, um, the, the business liability bill that uh, uh, Rep. Perez mentioned, uh, the fact that Republicans are calling that their most important bill is just, uh, I mean, shocking to me. We've got so many things ailing this state uh, to say that that's the most important bill. Last time I looked, there were a grand total of five lawsuits filed against businesses where someone claimed to contract COVID at their business. So it's a solution in search of a problem. Uh, and the legal standard is much harder. Just not, just not following CDC guidelines does not constitute gross negligence. But the nursing home bill is particularly outrageous. These residents are captive. They don't go anywhere. They only live in the nursing home. The nursing home is paid money to do one thing and one thing only, protect the residents. So if the nursing home is negligent in protecting the residents and doing its sole duty as a nursing home, it should be held liable. And they've already got uh, 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 the worst liability laws in the country for nursing homes in this state, non-existent in insurance, wasting policies, uh, uh, low liability requirements. These are our grandparents, uh, people who have raised us, who have taken care of us, who've done so much for this state. And to be put in a vulnerable position because a nursing home doesn't take ordinary precautions against COVID. And we've seen stories about letting people come to work that are positive and all kinds of things. Do your job, protect the residents, do precautions. You won't be found negligent. State Senator, I want to stay with you just because this is your bill I'd like to talk about for a moment. Um, today marks three years to the day in our community, a heartbreaking anniversary, mm -hmm. the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High. Uh, and the legislature session right after that, there were some unprecedented gun bills passed. 
Uh, again, you have a bill this year that aims at gun safety. Your bill in particular, among many, um, aims to ban some high-power weapons. Uh, again, there's going to be a debate over gun safety, and there are a lot of bills filed right now that expand gun rights. Uh, please weigh in, if you would, on why you think that these gun bills have a chance where they haven't in the last three years. Yeah, Glenna, and first uh, and foremost, my heart goes out to, to the families and friends of the victims of, of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting. Um, Valentine's Day for them will never be the same. Uh, the memories it conjures up. I toured the, the school within days and saw the Valentine's cards and flowers strewn across the hallways from the kids who were trying to escape the carnage being inflicted on them. And that carnage was inflicted because Nicholas Cruz was able to use a high-capacity assault weapon and, and high-capacity magazines, uh, 30, 40 bullets in a cartridge. There is no valid use for these types of weapons of war. The manufacturers who made them specifically define their use for one thing and one thing only, to kill large numbers of human beings in as short a time as possible. Nicholas Cruz was able to fire off hundreds of rounds because he had these weapons. He had access to these weapons. There's no sporting purpose to these weapons. It's not a sport to hunt a deer with one of these things. And you don't need them to protect your home from invasion. Danny Perez, so, can you can you weigh in on from, from your perspective? Sure, of course I can. And, and I'm, I'm glad Senator Farmer said that. Uh, I obviously share those condolences. And that was an unnecessary event that all of us wish wouldn't have happened. And uh, the details behind that obviously were, were horrific. And Look, you know, I, I can tell you in the house um, right after Parkland, I was I was serving. It was my first year, um, and we passed House Bill 7026. I can tell you this, Glenn, it's the only bill that I remember the number from over my last four years in the House because of how important it was. And in in the bill that we passed the Florida House, uh, a person like Nicholas Cruz would not have been able to uh, have purchased a weapon that he did or bought it on the black market or even possessed it. Um, after the bill that we passed. So I completely agree with Senator Farmer. Um, and we did do something about that in the Florida House and the Senate, and we did pass that. And I remember um, the satisfaction that we all had in making sure that at least we made some progress in uh, uh, making sure that a Nicholas Cruz couldn't do what he did um, just three years ago to those 17 families. I mean, uh, what a sad day, and, and my heart goes out to all of them. It always will. Yeah, but, so do but, but Glenn, all it's that a... bill did was say that somebody who's under 21 can't purchase those weapons. And by the way, we tried to add the words sale or transfer. We tried to add the words or transfer, and that amendment was blocked. So still in Florida, an adult can buy an assault weapon and give it to a minor. Yeah, Senator, no we're going to have to jump. We're going to have to jump in. Sorry, we are out of time. Great Michael, you having you. We will see you in Tallahassee in a couple of weeks. Good luck with the session. And thank you for spreading thank the love on this Valentine's <laughs> Day. <laughs> thank you. Thank you both. All right, next, what may be the most focused effort in South Florida overcome barriers to success for black people in South Florida? That's our topic next. This week launched what could be South Florida's largest and most focused effort to increase the social equity and financial success for black South Floridians. The South Florida Black Prosperity Alliance, which goes across Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties, brings together more than a dozen civic, business, charitable, faith-based uh, faith organizations. With us now to get into the details are Miami-Dade Chamber of Commerce 
President CEO Eric Knowles, one of the founders of the Alliance, and Broward businessman Baron Channer, top executive in real estate management and development. Gentlemen, good morning. Good morning. So good morning to you. Mark, thanks for having us. Eric, let's start with you. Uh, when this was all announced this week, you said when elected officials aren't doing what they should, it's up to us to demand what is right. Specify what elected officials, I guess that would be a collective, what aren't they doing? Um, well, it's about making sure that the disparities that have been plaguing our community are addressed. And I know that's happening in, in Dade County. It's been happening in Broward as well as Palm Beach. There, there has been disparity studies, but we've had issues with that as well, where in Miami-Dade County, black businesses receive less than 2% of procurement and opportunities to do business with the county. Same thing with the school board. With the school board, Miami-Dade County School Board, the disparities were in place. There have been disparity studies, and that number has begun to tick upward but there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, Baron Channer, I read your op-ed in this morning's uh, Miami Herald, well said. Uh, in it, you say our mission is to increase the economic and social prosperity of the black diaspora in South Florida. How do you do that? What is your agenda? Where do you begin? Well, it, it, it starts by first off assessing ourselves, engaging the community, establishing an actual agenda so that our allies and the larger community is aware of us and then having strong expectations of what people do and engaging them to support them in doing so and those who aren't doing it encourage them to change their ways and and, and part of the challenge here is that the issue is raising the priority level and the reason why this alliance has been established is just to simply increase our voices demand more and also make ourselves a more active part of the solution. So how does that differ then from the programs that are already in place? And, and there are numerous programs throughout the counties. Uh, Miami-Dade Economic Advocacy Trust mm -hmm. is one of them. The 500 Role Models is one of them. There's, there seems to be so many well-intentioned and hardworking groups already at play. What is the difference here? Well, Glenna, what I would say is everyone's working in their own silos. Obviously, I run the Miami-Dade Chamber of Commerce that focuses on black business minorities and women. The NAACP focuses on what it focuses on, but it's for organizations like the Chamber to support the NAACP, to support the Urban League, for us to support one another. And when there are issues that confront each one of these organizations, that we are all in the room looking for solutions to those issues that they confront. So it's not being out there on an island by yourself. And, and, and if I could add please, also, please do. It, it's a focus on prosperity. Prosperity is the operative word. Black people no longer want to simply endure poverty with humility. We want to succeed. So to the extent they're housing programs, wonderful. We applaud those. We also want to be developers and contractors. To the extent their programs to support kids and provide provide them education, wonderful. We want those kids to envision themselves being leaders of our communities when they go to college or pursue whatever advanced education that they obtain. Yeah. So prosperity and the the hyper focus on prosperity is an important part of this, and 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 getting it to the point where we are talking about not simply having black people exist 
in this wonderful region we call South Florida, but actually thrive and be an active right. part of helping it grow and benefiting from its growth. Yeah. Uh, Eric Knowles, I was at your event on Friday at the Urban League of Broward. And one of the areas, I mean, you're talking about medical care, you're talking about jobs, pay, opportunity, and social justice is one of the things that was talked about there. And it occurs to me that there is a prime example of the lack of social justice in Broward County. Uh, last May, a young woman named Latoya Ratliff was shot in the eye, had a serious injury right above her eye by a Fort Lauderdale police officer uh, in a Black Lives Matter protest. Uh, the police officer was identified. He has never been disciplined as far as we know. Fort Lauderdale police promised a thorough investigation. We have never seen the thorough investigation. And it was only this week that a Fort Lauderdale commissioner, Ken Sorensen, bless him, actually went to Miss Ratliff and apologized. That's the first time anybody has ever said, we're sorry this happened. Now, is that not a prime example of Absolutely. social injustice? Absolutely, Michael. And and I heard about that. She was shot in the um, her eye area with a rubber bullet. And you're absolutely right. And that's why we're coming together so that that young lady can have a voice beyond uh, those who are supposed to be doing what's right. And obviously they haven't been. And so we are coming together to be that voice and not just be that voice, but look for answers and solutions to these issues and to also push for prosecution for for police officers who do not act accordingly according to their job description. I want to get back to the issue of prosperity, the name of the alliance. Baron, something you said, I have some, I have some questions. Um, details. To, to be prosperous, people do what they know. There needs to be um, some kind of fund of seed money. There needs to be some kind of financial literacy, financial education. How, you know, I, I look at a, at a community like Miami Gardens, which is the largest black majority city. They, they did something right there. I mean, you look over the last 10 years, uh, Oliver Gil, uh, Gilbert, the former mayor, who is now a county commissioner, ha had a plan for development. It looks, from this perch, looks like it worked a lot. Talk, if you would, about the actual detailed methods of of prosperity, of getting somebody to be successful financially like that. Absolutely. Well, first of all, prosperity is defined differently by different folks, and it's influenced by your socioeconomic status. So there, there's no uniformity across the black community. But it starts with a couple of basic things. One, you have to be healthy to be prosperous, and health is wealth. So that we have to start to address some of the issues that relate to systemic access to healthcare within the community, and then also within ourselves, access and awareness to issues that relate to health. Jobs and contracts, oftentimes the programs, some of which you alluded to earlier today, do a wonderful job in articulating the need to create jobs for black people but are the jobs well-paying jobs? And I'm not talking about the debate around wage levels and so forth, but we all know which jobs allow someone to escape the rat race of, of just being marginally poor. Contracts. We are black business owners. If you look at 
Miami Gardens, if you look at North Miami, if you look at the neighborhoods that we claim and we identify successful neighborhoods, there is latent talent that is there. People who have ideas, who currently employ two or three people, they need what every other small business owner needs, whether they be business owners in Miami Beach, Coral Gables, or Hialeah, they need access to opportunities. And our governments and also our private sector produce significant amounts of opportunities. So perfect example there. I would encourage and invite any of the major private companies, we always talk about government, but any of the major private companies in town, step up. 10% of your procurement could easily be supported by black businesses in South Florida. Probably 20%, but pick a number. Step up and be a part of the solution. Those are some of the ways. You speak about financial literacy, and that's absolutely correct. But people have to be generating enough money for financial literacy to become a relevant topic to them. And oftentimes, folks are marginally poor. And we have to escape the idea of helping black people sustain poverty with humility and actually embracing the idea that we want them to thrive. That doesn't mean you have to be a one percenter or a billionaire or whatever terms are thrown around, but we want you to be able to do more than just the basic essentials so you can focus on craft and the life that you desire. And that's what we all want and hope for everybody across our community. And the Alliance is stepping up to say that black people want to be a part of the party. We don't want to change or stop the party, but we want to be invited to the party that is South Florida and South Florida's growing prosperity. Baron Shanner, Bar uh, Eric, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to cut you off here. We are out of time. Uh, Eric, always good to see you. Baron Shanner, good to meet you. And you'll uh, be back, promise. And yes, keep us informed about what the Alliance is doing. SoFloridaBlackProsperity.org. Excellent. Please join us. Very good. Thank you so much. And coming up, equity and inclusion remains the topic. A South Florida department in County Hall is actually called that now, and you'll meet the new director next. This week, Miami-Dade's mayor made good on a campaign promise by creating a new Department of Equity and Inclusion. And its mission is to both study and eliminate the inherently racist barriers to success. Its first director is Jason Smith, and Jason Smith right there alive with us today. Hi, Jason. Jason, good afternoon. Hi. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me, Glenna and Michael. This is clearly a continuation, as it were, of the conversation we just had with uh, uh, Banner Channing and Eric Knowles. Uh, where do you fit into this whole idea of improving the lives of black people and making life more equitable for them in South Florida? Well, the government has a unique role in impacting the lives of the residents in our community. Uh, a lot of these systems uh, that Barron and um, uh, Eric were speaking about were created by the government and you know structures created by the government years and years ago to uh, to separate the races and to separate communities. But now Mayor Levine Kava has uh, created this office so that we could reimagine the relationship between the government and the community and build a society that is a lot more inclusive and a lot more <laughs> equitable. All right, so let, let's talk of, let's talk about numbers. We, in fact, referenced in our last segment, disparity studies done, and, and I'm talking in specifically in Miami-Dade, the county, uh, the school district, 
And this county disparity study showed that government contracts in the county, just 2% of them go to minority-owned businesses. Uh, I, I think a lot of people were sort of stunned at that number. Why is that? Is that because there, haven't been in, there hasn't been enough attention to it? Or what specifically are the barriers that, even if they are subtle barriers, stand in the way of growing that beyond 2%? Right. So uh, I think the disparity study that you are mentioning is the uh, disparity study for the school board. But the county has also created a disparity study um, that did uh, recognize that there are uh, there is a lack of, uh, of coordination in reaching out to businesses in our community. So I think it's twofold, right? Um, one is there are perceived barriers and then there are real barriers to uh, registering to become a county vendor and, uh, and then there are perceived barriers. Sometimes vendors don't want, businesses don't want to uh, go through the hassle of becoming uh, county vendors uh, and competing on uh, contracts because they may believe that there is, um, that there is uh, uh, inequity in the system. And but is that your, the department that you are now taking helm of is new? What is, give us the mission statement. Is that yeah. part of it or does that comprise most of it? I know uh, your beeper's going off, your not beeper, I, I know, those things. I, <laughs> message tones going off. <laughs> yeah, so uh, everyone is excited about this discussion and, and that's one of the good things about this office is that we've generated so much uh, goodwill in the community. Everyone is ready to, to tackle this issue of, of equity and expand equity and inclusion in our community. So uh, as I see it, our goal in the Office of Equity and Inclusion is to ensure full inclusion of residents in the economic, political, and uh, social life of Miami-Dade County, regardless of their age, race, gender, neighborhood of residents. And uh, we believe that equity is essential to realizing economic growth and prosperity in Miami-Dade County. So, uh, you know, Jason, part of my- so, so yeah. I, let me just be clear here. I had said earlier that, you know, that you're helping the lives of, of black residents here, but are you not also thinking about the Salvadoran or the Guatemalan field workers down there in South Dade County working on those big agri agriculture facilities or a construction worker out in Doral? I mean, you know, your mandate is really pretty wide. It's equity and inclusion includes all members of our community, not just uh, the racial component or the ethnic component, but the LGBTQ community, our seniors, the people with our people with disabilities. So we're really thinking of how can government positively impact the lives of all residents in Miami-Dade County, whereas in the past, government may have uh, focused on certain segments of the community. We want to ensure that government is positively impacting the lives of everyone in our community, whether you live in a migrant community in South Dade or in Aventura or in Homestead or Perrine or, or Miami Gardens. So we want to make sure that government is equitably delivering services uh, to all residents of our community. Jason and Smith, we are going to be with you all the way, and we invite you to stay in touch <laughs> and keep us in touch with the things that you're doing in that department. Thank you so Good much. Luck. Thank you.
All right, we all watched the impeachment trial this week. I know we did, hours of it, and it raised a plethora of legal questions. So we are going to try to answer them with a renowned South Florida attorney. That is next. As you certainly know, the vote was taken and former President Donald Trump was acquitted by the Senate yesterday. The results of the vote yesterday surprised few, but the proceedings took some twists and turns to get there. Bruce Rogo is one of South Florida's most notable constitutional law attorneys, founding professor at Nova Law, and for half a century involved in civil rights and civil liberties cases, with a client list as diverse as businessman Donald Trump, recently Roger Stone, and not so recently, South Florida music giant Luther Campbell. Bruce, so good to have you with us today. Bruce, nice, to be with, nice to be with you both. We are so glad you are. Let's begin with something that uh, both Rick Scott and Marco Rubio said. They said as horrific as the events of January 6th were, that the Senate didn't have jurisdiction. They could not impeach a president who was out of office. Now, I'm not asking you to opine politically, but in fact, uh, the Constitution does not preclude an impeachment uh, for a president who has left office. In fact, are there not precedents that say a, a federal official can be impeached once he or she is out of office? There are, of course, and the House managers presented those uh, precedents, and obviously, uh, majority of the senators uh, agreed, although not the two-thirds majority necessary. You know, I think one of the biggest questions people have since yesterday who watched what went down on a Saturday afternoon is that the, the House managers won the right to call witnesses and detailed especially why they wanted to call witnesses. It, it seemed like earning that right was a big coup for the House managers and then they didn't call witnesses. What happened there? Well, I think they got in what they wanted with the statement from, <clears throat> from Congresswoman Herrera, uh, because I think that was the major point that they wanted to make, that during the, the insurrection, during the uprising, uh, the president, former president, knew what was happening and didn't pay any attention to it, basically, actually kind of threatened the, the uh, House minority leader. So I think they got what they wanted. I, I think, you know, this was a strange event uh, in terms of both what happened and in terms of a proceeding in which the uh, jurors were victims. Uh, the jurors actually witnessed mm -hmm. what happened. And, of course, the jurors also were not impartial because they had their own agendas that they were trying to address, uh, their future as Republican candidates, things like that. So it, it was... It was both political theater and legal theater. But I think the House managers did a terrific job in laying everything out. And obviously, getting seven Republican votes is historic in any impeachment proceeding. So you, you know, have you to give them credit. Yeah, you bring up a, a good point. This wasn't a typical criminal trial proceeding. This was right. a political trial. You being a an attorney and um, able to sort of see things from both sides and you watched if you were one of those jurors one of those senators how how would you have voted yesterday <laughs> well you know it, it's hard to be impartial in a situation like this but certainly the evidence was powerful i mean powerful i think beyond a reasonable doubt that that the encouragement and the promotion 
uh, of the activities uh, occurred during that January 6th uh, conference, not conference, but the outside events that uh, the president had. And so I thought there was certainly enough evidence to convict him. And certainly seven Republican senators also agreed. So again, that was a powerful, powerful point. I mean, I think despite the fact that the House managers, quote, lost, uh, because of the acquittal, I think really they won because they did something that had never been done before and got people to go against what their party leaders were telling them. Yeah. Bruce Rogo, you are a celebrated First Amendment uh, defense lawyer. You really represented some, I mean, I first met you when you represented Luther Campbell when he was arrested for a allegedly vulgar or album uh, in Broward County. Uh, the argument that Jamie Raskin made yesterday on the First Amendment was that uh, whatever President uh, Trump, former President Trump said on January 6th, he said was not protected by the First Amendment because it was an incitement of violence. And also, he said, because it, um, it violated his oath of office, which holds him to a higher standard. Take us through the First Amendment arguments pro and con. Well, the First Amendment obviously is a restraint on government power to penalize and punish speech. So I thought that the, the Trump defense, defense team uh, appropriately raised the First Amendment issue. But the First Amendment is a protection against government power. And here it was government power, the presidency itself, that was promoting or inciting the violence. So it's an unusual situation, never had one like that before. And, you know, if this ever went to the Supreme Court, uh, it could be an interesting issue. It could even be a five to four decision if you strip away all of the surrounding circumstances about people's loyalty and fealty uh, to either their party or to the president who appointed them. Uh, so it was not a frivolous argument that they made about the First Amendment. It certainly has some traction and, and it really, I guess, provided an opportunity for some of the senators to find a principled way to avoid finding uh, against the president. But I think really putting aside all of those nuances, the First Amendment in a situation like this does not protect incitement to violence. I mean, there's a federal statute and the federal statute talks about promoting or encouraging a riot, promoting or encouraging violence. And the Brandenburg versus Ohio case, which was bandied about by both sides during the, uh, the proceedings, uh, is an important decision. Uh, if you look at it literally, it looks like there's nothing you can do unless you're leading the charge and leading the riot and insurrection. But like many things in the law, there are a lot of words and how people perceive them and interpret them becomes the critical thing. Uh, here, I thought, once again, the House managers had the better side of the argument. We have about a minute left. In just a, a minute, the, the argument, the closing argument, Donald Trump's lawyers said that they argued there is just no jurisdiction here for this question, which had already been decided prior to that there was. It, it, that's confusing to lay, we lay people. Explain that, if you would. Well, what's confusing is if there's no jurisdiction in a, reg in, a re in a regular proceeding, if a court finds that there's no jurisdiction, the matter is dismissed. Here, the court, in effect, the Senate, found there was jurisdiction. So I think the obligation of the senators was then to proceed as if there was jurisdiction and vote up or down on the merits of the case. 
And finally, the argument about no due process. In fact, under this kind of impeachment process, the trial itself was the due process, wasn't it? it and and it was. President, former President Trump was invited to testify. He chose not to. Well, that, that no question about it. He had the opportunity to testify. I mean, due process is the right to be heard. He had the right to be heard. He declined that opportunity. So therefore, it is hard for him to argue there was no due process. Yeah. Bruce, thank you so much. Great to hear from you. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Take care. We'll bye be bye. right back. We thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Remember, we're online 24-7 at local10.com. Stay informed, get involved, celebrate your Valentine.